this is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today, we join scholar of religion Alicia Turner and explore genealogies of religious tolerance and intolerance in Burma. Well, good afternoon. This is Southeast Asia Crossroads once again. I'm the host, uh, uh, Eric Jones, and with us in studio is our good friend, uh, Alicia Turner. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Um, Yeah. I was telling people all day, it's great to be back at NIU. It feels like being home. Uh, been many years since I've been here, but not much has changed. Lots of great things here. Yeah, Alicia has a, a, a long history with us in the Center for Burma Studies, uh, of course. Um, for 10 years, the editor of the Journal of Burma Studies. Thank you for your service. Uh, <laughs> everyone should go check out her handiwork there. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a great journal. We're, we're, we're proud of it. Uh, you should be, too. Um, uh, Alicia is uh, Associate Professor of Humanities and Religious Studies at York University, uh, Toronto, and she's um, recently on campus uh, giving us uh, a great talk that we're going we're gonna to discuss a little. Um, I also want to mention um, a few of our guests that I'll let them introduce themselves are here in studio with us. Uh, Kenton, you want to start? Uh, hi, Eric. I'm Kenton Clymer, uh, Professor of History, and uh, I've written a book on U.S. Burma relations. Thanks for being Kenton. Hi, I'm Thera Vitan. I teach Burmese and uh, censorship in Southeast Asian literature here. And um, I wrote um, History of Women in Modern Burma. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we've got, a, we've got a room full of historians here. We're going to tackle <laughs> some... Uh, <laughs> tackle the past. Um, we were joking that uh, it's a lot easier dealing with um, the deceased you... Uh, re- uh, Access to research permissions, you know, IRB is a lot easier. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the for the for the historians, um, Alicia. Thanks again for your talk. It was uh, genealogies of religious tolerance and intolerance. Um, so, paint a picture for us. Uh, what are we talking about here? In when we say uh, genealogies of religious tolerance and intolerance in Burma. Um. So the talk comes out of a a book project I'm working on this year. And what I'm really interested in is thinking about how people came to think about themselves in terms of religious identity. And I've done a lot of work on that in the past and thinking about how how people came to think about Buddhism. But more importantly, how they came to think about difference between groups of people. How, How is it that religious identity became a really important marker of different groups of people in Burma? And I think there's lots of different pathways that that came about, but the one, the things I know um, are colonial history. Um, so one of the chapters in this book and the one I've talked about today is is thinking about the ways in which the development of colonial law and colonial administration, as well as colonial discourse about Burmese as compared to other parts of British India, how that came to develop into some pretty increasingly rigid divisions between Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims. I think we, um, if we're not if we're not careful, we can kind of assume that religious identity is is baked in and it's and it's the 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 world we find ourselves in now is the way kind of it's always been right that's uh that's kind of it is that is that is that just as prevalent in in Myanmar Burma as it is in other places that kind of sense that we it's always been this way yeah exactly i think 
people the world over assume that religion is a single fixed thing um, and that everyone has a religious identity or religious background or none at all. Um, and, and we assume religion's a tricky thing because you always assume that you know what you're talking about. And yet when you ask people to start putting their finger on it, you begin to realize that things are much more up in the air, right? Christianity is not the same thing in North America as it is in southern India as it is in Africa. Um, these traditions are different, developed in different ways. And similarly, right, uh, Buddhism has its own development and traditions. Part of the theoretical work that I do on going behind this is actually thinking about how it came to be, how, how the world that we understand it, the discourses it came about through a discourse of secularism made us think about religion as a finite thing. Right through through history and European history and modernity, we've started to say religion is a is a specific aspect of life, devoid from all sorts of other things. But actually, the more evidence if you go further back, you start to realize that religion wasn't really divided off into a specific thing. And there are sets of ritual practices and eating practices and interactions and marriage that only after a certain moment did we call all of these religion and other things not religion. So not only religion yeah. itself as a category comes out of this, but also specific identities of, you know, we have we create boundaries and then people have to declare themselves on either sides of those. So we know a lot about say the maybe the construction of Hinduism in 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 India um, in in important ways and I guess something that really stuck that you were that you had mentioned is the the way that contingency plays a role in that the the past um, those there's, there 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 were no definite um, kind of uh, set categories or 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 ways that this played out and um, I guess that that might be uh, scary on one hand that, that that it's that it's that it's highly contingent and and permeable but uh, but uh, also I guess that that maybe some hope that 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 flexibility also continues that it's that it, that, that impermanence is not. Um, is is going forward so that was a good um observation you mentioned uh, secularism and uh, along the same line i was thinking you know the formation of state emergence of uh, nation state right and then during your talk you talk about um, different colonial laws right that codified that religious identity and it would be interesting if you could explain to our audience a little more about you know how those uh, state formations um, make that religious identity rigid you know like as opposed to the, uh, being a fluid thing um I, yeah again i think it's a useful thing to uh, step back and think about the things we assume to be true and normal and then and then ask some questions about how they came to be, right? So we assume that if the state is secular, that it sits outside of religion. It doesn't participate in religion at all. Um, in North America, we call it separation of church and state in specific ways. But actually, if you look at what the state has done, and particularly colonial state in which it develops, but also the state in Europe and North America, there's lots of interaction between the, between the state. Even when it says we're not involved in religion, there's all sorts of regulation of what practices are religious or aren't um, and how you come to identity. And the one that becomes really important in the stuff that I'm looking at here is that on one level, the British, uh, when they first arrive in India, they say, we want to be respectful 
we don't want to come and impose our laws. What we'll do is we'll look and see which laws are already here, and we'll take we'll administer you by your own laws, which seems to be an incredibly generous thing. And they justify it by saying, we're not going to impose our religion on you either. We're not going to make you become Christians. We're going to respect that you're Hindu. We're going to respect that you're Muslim. But what happens in that process is by creating Hindu law and Muslim law in India, they reify those two things, right? We know Muslim legal traditions are hugely various. There's very different interpretations, and down to the local level, right? Locally, over here, we do it this way. But slowly, that has to become into two very fixed bodies of laws. Um, so what was interesting to me is it wasn't didn't necessarily have to be that religion determined law in Burma the way it does or that religion determines identity in Burma the way it does. So you you have to identify a religion. You're, you're forced to do that. And it seems like, why would a secular state care what religion you are? A state shouldn't care at all. But if you look back at the history, India determined the law that the, that you were, that the colonial government would impose on you was from your own religion. They didn't want to impose from the outside. So then they had to determine what your religion was, what the law of your religion was, which books are you going to choose, which authorities are you going to assume. When they make those decisions, they make these things more and more rigid. Yeah, your, 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 your marriage law, your inheritance, secession, all these things follow from that. I was really struck thinking about the in in the Dutch East Indies, they, you know, there's kind of a... a progressive discourse about how well, the Dutch didn't enforce, you know, they, they respected colonial law, adadrecht, customary law, and, you know, they went and uh, tried to understand it all. But but in that process was a, was there was a pretty big dark side, which is both freezing in time uh, that law code as, yeah. as one thing, and who knows if it was accurately captured, that, that snapshot um, that it was, but it also, um, it allowed them to keep those 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 ethnic groups outside of a, a discourse of universal uh, uh, law or of European code. So there there could be you know there's these indigenous laws and then there's the laws that the Europeans that apply to the Europeans. And so it's a it's a yeah that it was uh, not just a tolerance policy that, <laughs> that I mean is is yeah. the for British India and and, and um, Burma is is there is there more going on there as well? What's it? Why do they want to to um, make the indigenous people subject to their own religious custom as they define it. Um, what I found really interesting, so I, right, even when I was at NIU, I taught uh, South Asian history, South Asian colonial history. So the the Hindu Muslim splits very you know, very clear and known in in the colonial history of India. And of course, I had just translated that and assumed, of course, then it's Hindu Muslim Buddhist in Burma. And I started to do the work and say, well, wait, when did that innovation come? Because it doesn't actually continue in India and the Indian side of things. So I started to sort of pick apart when did it actually happen. And uh, it's one of those fun moments as a historian. You don't get very many of those, right? Um, When I could start to pin it down between six years. So the earlier moment of colonialism in Burma, law is the local law that they're going to use is defined as Burmese law. It's only defined in terms of ethnicity or race. So what time period are we talking here? Um, so from the 1826 okay. um, straight up to uh, 1959. Or, sorry, 1859. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so uh, 1859. In 1859, they write down these laws. They take it out of the written books of Burmese uh, law that they have, the Damatats, and they call it Burmese law, and they don't mention Buddhism at all. Religion isn't there. Um, all of a sudden, 1865, all the same laws are now called Buddhist. 
So what happened in this tiny little time period? And the nice thing for historians, too, is you can see that what seems like a linear progress is actually an awful lot of infighting between different groups of people. There were people in India who didn't want to have this uh, Hindu-Muslim religious law anymore. They wanted a different universal system. They were arguing for one kind of liberal, universal, secular law. There were other interests that very much wanted religious laws. Um, And as it turned out, in one moment, two things happened. Um, The guy who had written the law in Burma uh, that was Burmese law happened to die. He died in 1863. He was the guy who had actually been administering law, could do this, had talked to people, knew the knew these things as fluid and not fixed. He passes away. Like he'd, he'd spent a good deal of time in, in Burma as well. Yeah, so he, he had lived the, in Malamyain, he'd uh, lived in Arakan. He'd spent quite a bit of time probably himself administering all these laws, and then he was tasked with writing the law. He's also the guy who divided up a lot of the property in Rangoon. Um, so a lot hmm. of the sites that you see were his decision about who got what. Um, so, But he passes away. And all of that body of knowledge is lost with him. And suddenly they start pulling on different people who give a different interpretation. So the choice, I, my guess is, and I still want to spend some time at the British Library seeing if I can find more of the records, my guess is it's administrative ease. The people in India who were arguing for universals were losing by this point. Um, the people who are arguing for religious laws are winning. But also, it's an ease. Ah, we know how this works. We have a clear box, a box of Hindu law, a box of Muslim law, a box of, of Buddhist law, and so we can just make it comparative. And this buys into this uh, uh, growing discourse of the 18th and 19th century of world religions. Religions are all the same. We just have slightly different answers to all of these sorts of things, which, of course, wipes out all of the cultural specificity, <laughs> all of their histories, all of everything else. They're boxes, right? Uh, are you in the Christian box, the Muslim mm. box? The and probably box. mostly capital R religion. Yes, yeah. very much, right? Uh, local, local gods don't come into this. Uh, local practices don't. You have to conform to these larger discourses. Do, do you have any sense as to how the local people reacted to these laws and the, the British-imposed restrictions and so forth? Or definitions? The, so in, one of the sad things about Burma is that we have lost a lot of the low-level judicial recordings. And uh, so when you get them, they're really exciting. Um, so I don't have so many of those. And, and often what gets to be appealed in the records are people who have money. Um, in fact, it's, it's only a few criminal cases, usually criminal cases for adultery, so particularly sexy and interesting, <laughs> that make it to the <laughs> appellate level. Otherwise, it's only people with money who get there. Um, in, in India, when they're administering these things, it sounds like the local judges were actually quite good about administering local custom first. And so while the appellate level built these large, larger monoliths of Hindu law, there was still an idea that local customs should dominate. In Burma, I think that carries over, but it's different sets of communities, right? Hindu and Muslim populations are much smaller and much more diverse. They come from many, many different regions, many, many different traditions. And for the most part, they've also assimilated into a Burmese culture in which there's a local interpretation of what Islam would mean in Burma. All of that starts to get wiped away, at least by the, the appellate level, into a single specific kind of interpretation of what Muslim law in Burma is going to be. You had some interesting, uh, really interesting cases. Uh, could you give us maybe a, some a, a just rough snap, snapshot of like what 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 would have been the consequences for um, uh, uh, a religious rule or getting 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 put in one religious box versus the other for some of these folks who showed up in your records? Um, so often, it's either questions about legitimacy as marriage 
right? So uh, one of the cases are about um, a woman who was born as a Buddhist but converted to Islam to get married. It's an early case. Um, and the marriage didn't work out. She wanted rid of him. And one of the one of the things that the, the British often comment on is that divorce is very easy in Burma. Divorce is very common and acceptable, and it was very much considered local practice. So when these laws were considered Burmese laws, which was only a few years before this, she would have been able to get a divorce, walk in and said, you know, this right. is marriage isn't working. All, but all of a sudden, now she's mm. considered under Muslim law, so she's no longer allowed to divorce. And the only way she could divorce is denounce Islam, Nobody told her to denounce Islam. Um, so she's denied the ability to divorce in this situ situation. Um, similarly, we get the question of whether uh, uh, people who are ethnically Chinese, what is their religious background? And the judges seem to have a field day. They, they probably are a lot like us. They're probably scholars. They like to sit around with their books. So they pull off all the, the best books that they can find in cutting-edge scholarship about religion in China, about Buddhism, um, all written by Europeans, um, mostly people who study texts and not actual people. And um, they try to determine what is Chinese religion. And is Chinese religion, hmm. does it have a law that comes with it? And when they do, they come up with these very fixed boxes. There's Chinese Buddhism, there's uh, Taoism, and there's Confucianism, and they're very specific things, um, and we'll figure out what law we should apply to them. What they actually meet up with is, uh, is this wonderful deputation from the guy who's trying to explain what his father-in-law's religion is. And he says, well, <laughs> we worship this god and that god, and this god was kind of like, the, like Gotama, but I don't know who Gotama is, and I don't know who the Buddha is, and we go to this clan house over here, and he goes on and on, and it's really, if you're interested in historical sociology, it's a beautiful description of his religion, which is fluid. It has multiple local clan associations, it has uh, local gods, but the judge couldn't find the names of his gods in any of his books. So this guy was determined not to exist in any Chinese religion he could find and was kicked out of the system they were trying to appeal into. So the implications are, are pretty important, and, and often they determine inheritance, um, which, you know, thinking about how dry you can think about the laws of inheritance and succession are pretty boring and dry. <laughs> but they matter a lot because it determines yeah. how people think about their history, their ancestry, how, which group gets the money, is it the group that wants to define themselves as particularly Chinese or the group that wants to define itself as particularly Burmese? Um, and, so the, and, the, and, the, and those constructions can then probably replicate themselves over time. And over generations. And over generations by those groups to become as inherently as they, they feel ancient and immutable to the, exactly. to, the, to the people. Yeah, and suddenly we've always been this way. When actually, if you look back at the court case, well, your great-great-granduncle actually decided that we were this way because he was hoping to inherit. The grandson of Utant um, wrote in the New York Times, just or was quoted in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago about speaking of the current Rohingya issue and the response of or non-response of Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, and he was saying, "Well, you know, um, people want uh, speaking to Burmese. People want uh, democracy in the sense of uh, free elections and electing somebody they choose, but uh, not necessarily in the Western liberal sense of that term. That uh, that uh, they can very much associate um, statehood with with their religion." Uh, so, and and I, th that makes perfect sense, it seems to me, from 
your comments about how codified these get into these particular structures. Yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting in the ways in which the state in Burma has, well, the nation and the state and the rise of the nation state, as Therapy was talking about, the ways in which that those two become conflated in the moment of independence, right? It's been a group of people arguing for an identity that, in the earlier work I published, I would say in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1910s, ethnicity really isn't a problem um, in the sense that, that it was Buddhism that we were trying to preserve. Buddhism was the thing we were worrying about. And if you were Arakanese or Chinese or Sinhalese, you could be part of this project. Whereas by the 1920s, things become much more rigid and, and Burmese becomes the identity. Um, and then, but they, they become conflated. Right, Burmese and Buddhism increasingly become conflated. One out of out of the Buddhist so the, form the, the true Burmese are, are Buddhist. Right, the, yeah. right, exactly. The the phrase that gets repeated and published in almost anything you read on Burma, published in the like eighties, seventies, and eighties in North America, always has this phrase that to be Burmese is to be Buddhist. And they chart it back to the YMBA and nineteen oh six, and I can't find it in the records. I'm sure it's probably out there somewhere, but I I can't pin it down. Um, but so so these things became conflated. But also, there's a. It's not just the nationalist movements and the Buddhist movements that are part of that. It's important to think about the ways in which the structures of the colonial state itself actually set up religious identities. You had to have a religious identity for the state to know what to do with you, to need state to know what, how to interact with you. So on some levels, you know, we want to talk about. Um, your, your discussion of what Thamin Yu is saying, well, this isn't the liberal, modern, secular state of the West. He's implying, really wrongly, if you look at any Western state, that they're not deeply implicated in religion, right? We know that religion has shaped very much the state in the United States. Um, Protestant histories have come to develop what it is. And I now live in Canada. It's very clear that Protestant Catholic histories around English and French cultures come to shape the way the state is there. But even if we if we get granted him, oh, there's some ideal secular state in which religion isn't implicated. Uh-huh. He, he wants to say, oh, Burma is not really doing that. But actually, it's the secular aspects of the colonial state that they're carrying on. It was the secular aspect of the colonial state that required people to have a religious identity, not a chauvinistic, Buddhistic... Um, identity. It wasn't imposing religion. So it was more of a just a bureaucratic necessity of like how do we divide and conquer, or how do we how do we administer? Exactly. Is that, is that exactly. almost like? Yeah, I think you're never wrong as a historian to attribute an awful lot to bureaucratic laziness. <laughs> um, it's an awfully big force in history. <laughs> I don't think it's just laziness. I, I think I think colonial actors thought in terms of religion. Um, they were very much indebted to this idea of religion and identity, but it meant that was how they administered people. It was the easiest way for them. And also the um, notion that you know, um, if you're from Burma, you have to be Buddhist, and you know, if you are from Rakhine or Arakan region, that you have to be Rakhine or Arakan. So that uh, confusion between ethnonyms and regional appellations is a big problem because you know, mm. in the way yeah. the when uh, the ongoing conflicts in Arakan Yakhine particularly about Rohingyas right so we have a lot of different groups right uh, but just the fact that you are from that area then you have you can be identified with Rakhine is a very uh, wrong concept right they uh, that create a lot of problems yeah so very much so I mean I think if you start to look at like 
early uh, 19th century descriptions of areas. Right now, we have the states and divisions, right? So Karen are supposed to be from Karen State. Really? <laughs> Most of the Karen I know are from Yangon. Um, uh, but, but even <laughs> if you look early on, right, depicting places like Tavoy in the far south, it's a multi-ethnic place from the beginning. It has, well, it has people who are ethnically Tavoy and Burmese in this sense, or speak Burmese, um, but Karens and Mons and plenty of Thais and plenty of Chinese and Indians. All of these are there in the 18, uh, uh, 1820s. Um, and so, yes, the states and divisions and the idea of ethnonyms with place come to implicate these things as well. How did the, how did the colonial state think about, maybe for our listeners who might not know, um, uh, outside in the, the sort of the, the mountains that surrounds the, the, the lowlands there in Burma are many ethnic groups, um, uh, and that, that Christianity plays a role there. Um, other religions, world religions play a role there, but also, uh, animists and other traditions are, are, are abundant. So are, is there a, how are they rationalizing, uh, the, the, the Karen, the Wa, the Shan, the, the other, the other groups that are out there that, um, are even more maybe difficult to categorize if you're just have these world religion boxes? Um, the bits I know about this, and I won't claim to be an expert here, I, I read some stuff on um, early moments in Shan states, and one of the other tactics that they had imported from India was an idea of not just sort of buffer areas, but areas that were administered by local, that continued to be administered by local rulers. And so um, Shan Saubwa's got sort of suddenly be called princelings, and they, they were sort of raised to this level mm. of, of, you know, uh, well, and, and as they were understood locally, even as maybe not royal, but local leaders. And so to a certain extent in Shan states and the Shan states were administered as a separate sort of independent place in that way. So the rules of colonial law didn't apply as heavily and slowly but surely, in part because the ways the Shan Sabwas began to interact with the Buddhist movements, um, became defined as a Buddhist place. Right, um, the early Christian missionaries in Tenasserim in the south and Molomyan, and Molomyan became a very important place for Christian missionizing. Um, uh, had quite a bit of success with some groups, um, particularly with her, the Karen, and and yet, so part of there's an interaction between Christian missionaries who want to advocate on behalf of Karen to have separate identities within this, uh -huh. um, and and not to be clearly under Hindu, Buddhist, or Muslim law. Uh, and so, so there are there. There's an aspect, and actually, it's probably worth a little bit more work about the way the Christian missionaries push back on those laws in in Burma. Um, but the, for the flip side, is uh, compared to lots of other places, Theravada Buddhist places, um, say Sri Lanka, where there's a lot of conflict between the Christianity as a colonial religion. There's a period in which I like to say the status profession I could think of would be to be a uh, Christian missionary to the Burmese because um, they were highly unsuccessful for quite a while. Uh, they didn't convert very many Burmese. So in, in that terms, partly that start, helps to help uh, push ethnic terms on top of religious terms, right? So, um, so again, they were successful in converting chins, but not, um, but not others in that area. What I'm 
also interested in is that during your talk, you mentioned that um, independent Burma inherited you know, these uh, colonial uh, legal codes and laws and um, and how should I put it? Then also, um, there has never been a point. You know, oh, you, you also said that uh, you know, oh, we can get rid of them, but you know, we didn't do that, right? So, uh, and uh, you I mean you mean independent Burma? Independent yeah. Burma, right? So, and of course, uh, one of the um, biggest problems is the uh, the 1982 citizenship law, right? So, I'm not sure. Uh, if we can talk about um, why successive Burmese governments, you know, do not consider rewriting these legal codes, right? We still have the plural, plural, pronounce, plurality of law, right? So, you know, and then each uh, religion uh, of each group, you know, that uh, uh, Hindu or the uh, Buddhism has to be um, decided by our own setup. Uh, laws, but not the universal law, right? And how is it related to that 1982 citizenship laws and the the failure to decolonize? Now, decolonize uh, the laws and also decolonize our minds, right? How it contributed to the uh, current day problems. What's the what's the 82 citizenship law? Go ahead. Well, it is basically the continuation of the notion of 135 different races, right? If you cannot prove that you are one of these 135, or if you cannot prove that your ancestors reside in the country pre-1824, you are not going to get a citizenship. So you you have to prove that before the British arrived, you belong to an ethnic group that existed in the country, or that your ancestors existed there, right? So it, it's this dayintha, this the, the determining whether you're of the soil, whether you belong to the country, or whether you're a, a migrant, right, a, an immigrant in many ways. Um, of course, I think uh, in North America we would find it a little shocking to call someone whose ancestors arrived in 1826 as an immigrant, um, or we might say, yes, my ancestors <laughs> were immigrants, but perhaps not the kind of refugees right. you're thinking about. Um, and yet in Burma, that denies you citizenship. Um, I think these are really interesting. I think there's a lot that that's difficult right now in Burma. One of the things that I think is exciting, or the possibility is exciting, is this is one of the first moments where I have heard people talking very seriously about how do we decolonize our thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing that we as historians have to offer, and that is, is a discussion of what colonialism is. So if you want to think about how you decolonize thinking, you need to think through what colonialism was. So, so there's a consciousness in Myanmar that, hey, that, that, or there at least there's a discourse that like they, these these things um, are a are an adoption of uh, of of that of the colonial um, categories, or or is that is that a minority scholarly a, discourse? I think it's a minority, but I meet a, a lot of young, smart people from Burma who want to start asking these questions. Um, and I think they're good questions to ask, and I think it's a conversation that people inside the country need to have together. Um, the, the 1982 citizenship law is obviously in the forefront of people's minds right now. 
Um, and it, it has it inherits from exactly these notions, both notions of race and ethnicity and notions of religion and the ways they get laid over each other. Interesting pieces recently have come out about the census and the way the census is defined people. And the first two census, the 1872 census and the, and the next one after that, have very different ways of defining groups of people. And slowly the, the, the definitions that come in, 18, uh, in 1982 develop. One of the things I find interesting in relation to that conversation is that a lot of people assume that in something like the 1982 citizenship law, that the state is really inherently bigoted and inherently pro-Buddhist or sort of covertly Buddhist chauvinist, um, but but you know, but and what they're doing is just is just a hidden agenda. But the constitution in Burma has freedom of religion and does not declare a state religion, and has not in any of its time period. This is a secular state. It's a specifically secular state. It has a special place for Buddhism, but a specifically secular state, not that different from any other secular constitution. Um, and in fact, if you look at 20th century history, the governments that have proposed that Buddhism become a Bo- or that Burma become a Buddhist nation have fallen and have done particularly poorly, right? Unu's government fell, and in part, very much over this issue about whether this would be an officially Buddhist country or not. The military um, that took over, Nguyen, who took over, was about enforcing a secular, right, a secular government, and it is the enforcement of the bureaucratic regulation of a secular government that produces the the citizenship law in eighty two. But it, you know, similarly, the secular state of the colonial period. There's continuities there, I think. But on the other hand, um, Nguyen took over from Unu in part because, uh, as I understand it. Because Zunu was was moving toward reconciliation with some of the uh, minority groups, including the Rohingya, yeah. and had made, uh, as I understand it, uh, notable progress in that regard. And uh, Nguyen was uh, very much. But now I'm not sure how whether that ties into religion per se. But um, you know, if, if if he hadn't come into power, would we have had the law of 1982, which is so controversial? Um, you know, would we be having the same problems uh, involving the? Relations with the Rohingya now, uh, I don't know. Um, what do you think? <laughs> oh, that's a huge historical. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to speculate that much, but I think you're completely right that that the issues of ethnicity and religion intersect in different ways. And and whereas Unu was very much pushing a, in the present we presume a Buddhist nationalism to mean certain things. Mm-hmm. And it to mean certain things in ethnic terms, but they don't necessarily map onto each other. As clearly, I think this conflict between Nguyen and Unu makes you know it, right. The military had certain it, um, certain ideas of ethnicity, but religion wasn't one of them. But again, also you know, it it's it's Nguyen's secular military state that creates the uh, Mahana, the, the Mahasanga Nayaka, the regulation of, of Buddhist monastic organizations. It's not a Buddhist state that, that creates this large organization. And Mahana, the, the, um, the body that oversees all of the Buddhist Sangha and administers them, had never existed before in Burmese history. It's only a secular military state that puts in an official regulation of Buddhist religion um, and, and, they, and now has a particular relationship to Mabatha, um, the organization. So it's important for thinking about the weird turns of what you presume to be this, the government, which which governments you assume would be involved in religion for what reasons and which not, and what's what's actually going on. Yeah. This is a kind of a 
side note or the footnote. <laughs> uh, I think uh, tie in that also is misused, right? If you are a permit, for example, for me, I never say that I'm tie in that, even though it says it is the, you know, who belongs to the nation. Actually, tie in that is in local terms or local use for minorities. If you are a Burman majority, you don't say I'm dying that. So I think, you know, 1982 citizenship law, we can say is uh, created just for the minority so that they have to prove that they are dying that. Because Burman, it is take, t- taken for granted that we don't have to prove we are, you know, we're not dying that. I mean, we are Burman, right? thought of that but yeah the the uh this this uh that really forces the um all of the dozens of other <laughs> ethnic minorities to either either prove it or or um be stateless uh and or at, or at least not have uh standing within 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 burma so um yeah it's is it is it uh is the state um trying to um Push that on, push that on Burmans now, like to, to, to think of themselves in that way, or that's still, that's that's not. Yeah, we have the privilege not to <laughs> think of, you know. Yeah. It's yeah, it, it, you know, to 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 have the privilege is to never have to question one's ethnicity. Exactly. And and to have to have risen to that status. I mean, again, if you ask people their ethnicity and they tell you that they're Bama Bama, really Burmese. Um, <laughs> Uh, when when they replied that, actually, I, I've been in awkward situations where I work on the 19th century, and and it's fairly easy to do genealogy, and I happen to know that you have ancestors that are Rakhine or Chinese or Indian, and mm. yet if if through the course of these generations you've been your family's been able to define itself as Burmese, then you never have to think about ethnicity, right? Even if you have you know, a large portion of your family is, is actually shown. There, there can be um, almost almost ludicrous degrees in, and I'm assuming this is the same maybe in Myanmar, but I know, say, in, in Malaysia and India, where, in Indonesia, where um, a family will want to say, like, we are, we are maybe Malay Muslim for sure. Um, and, you know, that, but some maybe scratching the surface, the Chinese ancestry, uh, some of the, some of the very mixed heritage, which is, which is um, um, literally written on the faces, like that. It's uh, it, it makes itself. Um, you, you see how um, how difficult that prospect of kind of um, um, it, or I guess denying the plurality of of uh, makes heritage, trying to uh, make sense of that messiness and put it back into one uh, category. And that uh, um, uh, you know, Burma is so diverse. Uh, that uh, that can make that really hard. I'm I'm guessing to 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 present oneself as one thing or not. I'm just uh, curious a bit more about the 1982 law because prior to that, uh, the uh, state had already taken actions against the Rohingya, had made them uh, give up their national identity cards and had issued them foreign foreign cards that the foreign registration cards which they refused or many of them refused, uh, and the very few. Uh, Rohingya that had uh, national identity cards had to turn them in at some point. Uh, so I, I just wonder if the 1982 law, I wish I knew more about this, if that was really 
aimed primarily to discredit uh, the Rohingyas' claims to Burmese uh, citizenship, or whether it uh, was intended as a much broader um, law. I mean, the, the intent was much beyond that. I, Tharapi is very much more of an expert than I. Uh, but for me, history ends about 1930. <laughs> uh, but uh, So I'll let you answer. But I, my impression is that it was a much broader law defining... It, specifying many more ethnicities and, and trying to pin those things down much more carefully. That's right, but uh, maybe the 1978 and 82, uh, you know, they uh, kick in hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas out and, you know, having to repatriate them again in 1980, uh, I think we'll say the, probably the push uh, to draft it, yeah. What, why, um, it, it obviously takes a lot to, to, to push them out, what um, what happens in 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 the eighties that makes them want to, to to act against them when maybe they hadn't before? Like, what why uh, why does the state care in 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 eighties? What what's what's going on? I don't think I'm not sure we could go on to that because there are a lot of historical uh, events, right? Nineteen forty seven, and also yeah, the uh, the also the nineteenth century, eighteenth century. The uh, the fluctuations or the uh, the the, the vague of the boundaries, right? So both you know, Yakins and the Rohingyas, when as far as in Cox's Bazaars, and in some point in the 19th century, a lot of Yakins have to be uh, resettled back in their own area, right? When they uh, the, right. in 1820 after 1824 war, and uh, so those histories, and also you know the. Um, Coolies and 1947, the uh, the Rohingya siding of the Japanese and you know killing of the Burmese. So, so a lot of history, and then I'm not sure whether you want to talk about. Otherwise, the 1980 event will not be understood without talking about mm-hmm. like, what came before it. And uh, if we talk about it, it will be another half an hour. <laughs> I think you're being unrealistic. It's much more than half an hour. <laughs> I, th- I think we could sit here for weeks. Um, but yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the the these, I guess the you get the, I'm, I I know a bit of this, and and you know, I guess was trying to, I wanted to hear that from the Burma Burma specialist mouth because the the the, the modern um, news reporting is it's just so overly simplistic about um, this issue, right? It's like, well, it comes, it just happened out of nowhere, and it and it starts, uh, and I mean, I'm I'm t- telling you anything that probably doesn't frustrate you even 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 more so, but it's. Uh, um, it's been it's been simplified uh, in in pretty problematic ways. Added to the fact of you know international um, Nobel Prize uh, uh, winner uh, Aung San Suu Kyi being being um, at, at the head of the state that that um, is is carrying out uh, these evacuations, and so it's. Uh, uh, Again, I don't. I don't know if the how do how do we how do we educate um, a population about um, this this problem that is not new. simplistic depiction of the the country as uh, the evil against the good and also the Aung San Suu Kyi as you know the, the, the saint against those 
evildoers. I think it has been problematic all along, and they haven't realized yet. I think they, their disappointment in Aung San Suu Kyi is also, I, I think, a convenient um, diversion away from the disappointment in themselves, I, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I mean, she was a saint, you know, and when you have saints and icons, uh, it, it's easy to become disappointed because they are human beings after all. And uh, uh, so the, the, I think that one thing that um, that does seem a little strange to those of us that don't claim to be Burma specialists really about it is is the uh, is what we perceive anyway as uh, almost a universal uh, uh, detestation of the Rohingyas, um, in- including among some of the political prisoners that had been put down by the military in the revolution of 1980, 1988. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's, uh, it seems difficult to, to, to find um, or to hear Burma, Burmese voices that uh, have much good to say, say about them. Um, I've, I, I can tell a couple of anecdotes when I was there. I, I was in uh, Sitwe in uh, 19, uh, 2013, December 2013, and uh, went to the monastery of Uotama because I was curious about him because he was a famous Burmese nationalist uh, in, in the 1920s and 30s, and uh, was called in to, uh, invited in, I should say, to my wife and I to talk with uh, people, including the second in command of the monastery, and we sat around a table, and they were just very, very violently against the Rohingyas, and you know, they're taking our land, and uh, they're very dangerous, and, and so forth. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, I was teaching a course at, at Yangon University in December 2013 to the history department. And uh, I had mentioned the Rohingyas at some time, which were legitimately because they had become an issue between the United States and Burma in recent years. And uh, after I you know, mentioned them, why one of the students who's a history faculty member came up afterwards almost in tears you know, and said, uh, there are no Rohingya. We don't, we don't have Rohingyas here. And I guess what she meant was that they were Bengalis. They were unrecognized. Um, so it, it seems to be a very emotional issue among many people in, in Burma. And, and if, if there's any truth in that, it's going to be a very difficult uh, thing to resolve, it seems to me, as, as an outsider. And these are incredibly complicated things. That's one level. And it's also very local to the area in which it's not, if there's a national discussion, a regional discussion, and even local discussion of how each of those terms gain significance. Um, and, and then the issue of religion, right? The relationship of, of between a religious identity as a fixed a Buddhist identity and a Muslim identity. International media doesn't have those subtleties. Um, 
And and I don't think a lot of Burmese media offers those subtleties either. And and that's probably true. I mean, we're professors. We would like to sit down mm-hmm. for and teach a course on an hour on each of these issues. Um, and I can understand that most people have other things to do with their lives. But if you want to engage this, and when it is a matter of life and death for people, it matters to take time and get those subtleties. Um, so the issue of ethnic identity and religious identity have been merged in careful ways in this issue and you need to think about them but i think the international media is very very simplistic that this is buddhist muslim issue and only that Um, it does a huge disservice to many other muslims in the country um, who have a very different status within all of this and it does a disservice to the plurality of buddhists and buddhist interpretations that are in the country Um, it actually just gives voice to a single idea of buddhism and actually makes it much larger than it had ever been prior to this. So the more in which people talk about those issues in pluralized ways, the more voice they give to a single interpretation of Buddhism, which may not be the one that most people understand. And also Western media often miss the point that the issue of race and ethnicity has been so contentious that three years and 75 million U.S. dollars after the 2014 census, there has not been published data on race and ethnicity because of that contentious issue. That data have never been published. Because it's so potentially explosive? Exactly, or? yeah. Wow. Have you ever read census data? It's really, really boring. <laughs> but it tells you something, that, that data that boring is that contentious in the country. Um, it probably says more than anything else. And also, I think we probably need to mention that uh, Buddhism and army for so long have been anchored for a lot of people for stability and security in their lives. Now those two core issues have been shaken so violently by you know inside and outside forces. I think people, I probably feel sometimes uh, rightly so to defend themselves. You know, uh, so especially yeah. people who have to think that they need to have certain identity to show to the world, right? That's why we have uh, people who come to study in the U.S., you know, uh, defending their understanding of Buddhism, all the, 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 the Buddhism that they know, all the, uh, the, uh, the patriarchy that they force, the forces that perceive are uh, protecting and uh, sustaining the identity they know in the country, right? So I think we also have to understand those issues. And and uh, and, and of course, Burma's Burma's history is one that is is you know deeply disrupted. Um, the 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 monarchy destroyed the the you know, the monk had delegitimized the the you know village rule um, you know um, dis- uh, disrupted and um, the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the chaotic uh, world that Burma, that colonial, late colonial Burma seemed to be uh, uh, maybe from perhaps an idealized um, universal literacy kind of, you know, we, we can discuss whether that's actually true in the uh, early 19th century. But uh, it's not, uh, you, you can't fault maybe um, a Burman for for wanting some, some identity anchors in, in a, in a, in a in a state that is was under siege, those in the, which those things were deeply under siege for for its entire history. I think I think in this it's important to realize though all the voices we don't hear. I mean, I think as historians we spend an awful lot of time trying 
searching through the archives for how do we hear a voice that is not the dominant voice. We spend an awful lot of time doing that. Ironically, in a moment in which things opened up for Burma in wonderful ways, and suddenly masses of people have access to expressing themselves, I think we actually hear fewer voices Hmm. than we used to hear. Um, And there are plenty of voices out there who are actually saying very critical things. They may be saying them quietly. They've been doing them in very careful and intentional ways, but are also saying, wait a second, you know, how, how do we want to live as a community? How do we want to rethink what democracy means here? Or how do we want to think about what relations we're going to have in terms of ethnicity, in terms of religion? Do those things matter? Uh, it's clear historically for lots of people, religious identity wasn't, wasn't a life or death, wasn't a huge problem. Um, and they went about their lives in many different ways. Those voices continue out there, um, and you know the ways in which we can help them be heard is important. So, Alicia, your uh, your book "Saving Buddhism: The Impermanence of Religion in Colonial Burma" um, came out a few years ago, and I, I encourage all of our listeners to to check that out. UH Press, uh, go get it now. Um, uh, what is uh, anything you want to? This is part of a, uh, a future book project. Do we have a? Do we have a title? Do we have a? Uh, uh, what What are we looking at here? It's so funny in Burma. Apparently, when you write your thesis, the first thing you write is a title. Because every time I'm working on a project, <laughs> it's, so what is your title? In fact, if you want access to the archives, you have to title whatever the work that's not going to be published for five years. You have so to you write invent, the title. You invent and, like, a, okay, I'll call it. Uh. Yeah, um, but I don't like doing that. I don't. I don't completely know. It, it, we do. It we is, don't have to. But it but is what? Definitely so about religious tolerance and uh, and. Um, Thinking about these these kinds of, of myths of, of identity and how they become developed, uh, it's also paying a lot of attention to everyday people who um, cross these boundaries all the time and for whom these boundaries don't really matter. And I actually think that may be the larger majority in Burma, just not the loudest voices. Well, Alicia, uh, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you. And therapy really in Kenton. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music and the GU for production assistance. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.